0: Happy Saturday! Uh, Valentine's Day is just around the corner, so uh, we thought we'd have a love story for today's classic. Sort of. (laughs) It's actually a tragic story, but even before it turns tragic, one of its protagonists comes off as a little bit of a creeper. Uh, This is the story of Abelard and Heloise, which first came out on the podcast in 2014.
1: We got a number of notes after this podcast was first published about whether Heloise should be pronounced with or without an H. And we basically had pronounced it the way my medieval literature professor pronounced it. So let's listen in.
0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And uh, today we have something that has been... For a request of listeners, Oh yes, This was also something I planned to do, and that is uh, the story of Abelard and Heloise. So Abelard was a poet, a philosopher, and a theologian, and he was born uh, in Brittany, which is in northwest France today, in 1079. And in the words of the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, he was, quote, the preeminent philosopher and theologian of the 12th century. Heloise was one of his students, and she was born right around the turn of the 12th century. And she was a respected abbess of a prominent community of nuns. Uh, so they sort of had their own lives there, but they are best known today for their very tragic love story. It's been commemorated in poems, songs, novels, and films. If you've ever seen Being John Malkovich, you may even remember the Abelard and Heloise puppet show that features in that film. Um, this is a tragic love story. It's when I, I described the plot of it to the boyfriend over the weekend. And every time I would sort of get to a turning point, he would go, and then everyone's okay with that, right? <laughs> no.
0: Um, this is complete oh, with... Oh, that's, that's,
1: that's so hopeful. <laughs> you know, honey, they were not okay with that. Uh, it's complete with lovers who were forced apart, a secret marriage, a castration, and repeated exhumations, which is why we're talking about it. Right before Valentine's Day. What's more romantic than an exhumation, really? I
0: know. Uh. Well, the
1: exhumations actually are kind of romantic in a way. So we, we will get to that toward the end
0: of the episode. I'm laughing that awkward, silent laugh where no noise comes out. My face is just frozen in this odd scowl.
1: Yeah, as, as is often the case, we're talking about this story because I kind of love it. But it is very sad
0: and yeah. and disturbing in many ways. So, yes. So we'll kick it off with uh, sort of the background of the whole thing. And we should say at the front, we don't really know very much about Heloise's life before she met Abelard. We do not even know the identity of her parents. On the other hand, Abelard had really made a name for himself before Heloise was even born. And he wrote his life story down in a letter which is known as Historia Calamitatum, or the story of my misfortunes.
1: So Pierre Abelard, also known as Peter Abelard, was the son of a knight. And his family was on the lower rungs of the nobility. His father was an educated man and took pains to make sure that all of his children were educated, too. But as the eldest son, Abelard was really meant to follow in his father's knightly footsteps. And uh, in doing so, he would also be receiving a sizable inheritance.
0: However... What Abelard really loved was letters and learning, and he gave up all of this potential knighthood to become a philosopher. And as he described it, quote, I fled utterly from the court of Mars that I might win learning in the bosom of Minerva. Which is a lovely sentiment.
1: It's quite lovely. There are many lovely sentiments in this story to go with the parts that are horrifying. Um, He became an adherent of Aristotle, also known as a peripatetic. And the peripatetics purportedly got their name from Aristotle's habit of pacing around while he was teaching. But it also came to just generally describe people who moved around a lot, which applied to Abelard as well. By the time he met Heloise, he'd spent years studying and teaching Aristotelian philosophy and la- logic all over what is now France. And he had
0: developed his own philosophy of language. And along the way, he studied in Paris under William of Champeaux, who was another prominent theologian and logician at the time. And it became the first of many conflicts between uh, Abelard and another public figure. Abelard really picked apart and debated William's teachings. And when he, Abelard, was judged to be the winner, he was quite boastful about it and unfortunately tried to shame and embarrass William. Not the most noble behavior. Uh, And this simultaneously increased Abelard's reputation and it caused him some understandable problems in the intellectual community.
1: This was kind of his standard way of relating to people. He had a similar experience not long after with another teacher, Anselm of Leon, who he'd sought out to learn from before later becoming his rival.
0: After leaving Lyon, Abelard went to Paris again and became scholar-in-residence at Notre-Dame. And that's when Heloise's uncle, Fulbert, sent Heloise to Abelard for tutoring. Fulbert was a canon, which is a type of clergyman. So at this point
1: in the story, Abelard would have been about 38 years old. Heloise's age is kind of subject to debate because we don't know exactly when she was born. It's cited as anywhere between 17 and 25.
0: And here's how Abelard described Heloise in his Historia Calamitatum, Quote, of no mean beauty. She stood out above all by reason of her abundant knowledge of letters. Now, this virtue is rare among women. And for that very reason, it doubly graced the maiden and made her the most worthy of renown in the entire kingdom. It was this young girl whom I, after carefully considering all those qualities which are wont to attract lovers, determined to unite with myself in the bonds of love, and indeed the thing seemed to me very easy to be done.
1: Meanwhile, he described himself as, quote, possessed of such advantages of youth and comeliness that no matter what woman I might favor with my love, I dreaded rejection of none.
0: Not really, uh... Short on confidence. Nope. So the pair started out with a written courtship, and eventually they wanted to have more face-to-face conversations with one another. So Abelard convinced uh, Heloise's uncle to offer him lodgings in his house, which was also near the school where he taught. And Fulbert basically gave Abelard free reign over Heloise's education. He wrote, quote, The man's simplicity was nothing short of astounding to me. I should not have been more smitten with wonder if he had entrusted a tender lamb to the care of a ravenous wolf.
1: So that, to me, sounds a little alarming. It's, but It's less romantic it's, and more like, Yee. yeah, he seems a little creepy. But his description of their developing relationship sounds a little bit less predatory. Because, he says, we were united first in the dwelling that sheltered our love, and then in the hearts that burned with it. Under the pretext of study, we spent our hours in the happiness of love.
0: Heloise's point of view at the very start of their relationship really has ne- was not documented. Some scholars argue that she was a willing participant, but others point out passages from letters in which Abelard says that he was sort of coercive and demanding.
1: But... In the end, she insisted that she loved him passionately and completely. And their time together became so consuming and so extensive that Abelard started to shirk his other duties, both of her education and of the school where he was supposed to be teaching.
0: And Heloise's uncle seemed blind to all of this. So even as people gossiped and dropped hints to, the, to him that something was up with his niece and her teacher, uh, he didn't. Seemed to catch on. And when he inevitably did wise up to it after several months, Heloise's uncle, as one would anticipate, separated them.
1: Abelard is quite poetic about this, too. He says, Each grieved most, not for himself, but for the other. Each sought to allay not his own sufferings, but those of the one he loved. The very sundering of our bodies served but to link our souls closer together. The plenitude of the love which was denied to us inflamed us more than ever. Sometime after her uncle found them out, Heloise realized she was pregnant and she told Abelard that she was. So one night while her uncle was away... Abelard spirited her out of the house and sent her to live with his
0: sister in Brittany until the baby was born. Heloise's uncle, no surprise, was outraged. Abelard went to him and begged for forgiveness, insisting that he and Heloise truly loved one another. He offered to marry Heloise in secret, and Fulbert agreed.
1: But neither one of them really wanted to get married. They both sort of looked at marriage as this morally weak way to get away with having physical lust. Getting married would also have been a huge blow to Abelard's reputation and it would have put a cap on how far he could advance in the church since the highest levels of the clergy couldn't really marry. And since church was really the only path for somebody who had Abelard's education at that point, this was a problem. If he married her, he was going to be stalling his career permanently. But... Uh, He was willing to do it because it seemed like the only way to appease her uncle's fury.
0: Abelard went back to Brittany to retrieve Heloise and to marry her, but she actually refused him. She said that the plan was too dangerous, that she was not willing to sacrifice his potential and his reputation, and that there was no way her uncle was really going to forgive Abelard anyway just because he married her.
1: According to Abelard, after going on just at length about how damaging marriage and children were to the study of philosophy, Heloise said this, If laymen and Gentiles, bound by no profession of religion, lived after this fashion, what ought you, a cleric and a canon, do in order not to prefer base voluptuousness to your sacred duties, to prevent this charybdis from sucking you down headlong, and to save yourself from being plunged shamelessly and irrevocably into such filth as this? Not a favorite of the idea of marriage at all. Yeah, what a pity.
0: She went on to say how much sweeter and romantic it would be for her to be his mistress rather than his wife, because love would be a stronger bond between them than marriage could ever be. And in doing this, Heloise was basically saying she would sacrifice herself entirely for Abelard's sake, to allow him to have her without standing in the way of his life and career, while she would endure basically all the consequences.
1: Abelard could not be convinced, though, and she finally gave up, saying, Then there is no more left but this, that in our doom the sorrow yet to come shall be no less than the love we two have already known. Which is some foreshadowing.
0: When the baby was born, she named it Astrolabe, and they left him with Abelard's sister and returned to Paris to be married in secret very early one morning, in the presence of Heloise's uncle and some of Abelard's friends.
1: And Heloise, being an intelligent woman, was definitely right about her uncle. Even though their marriage was supposed to be a secret, Fulbert told other people that they had gotten married. So Heloise publicly insisted that her uncle was lying, which infuriated him. And fearing for her safety, Abelard sent her to the convent where she had been educated when she was younger, a place outside of Paris called Argentoia.
0: They continued to see one another. There's a passage in one of Heloise's letters in which she talks about making love in a corner of the convent itself. But Heloise's uncle interpreted her entry into the convent as a ploy by Abelard to get rid of her. So he bribed the servants in the house where Abelard was staying so they could get access to his rooms. And he sent his own servants to break into Abelard's room in the middle of the night where they actually castrated him. So,
1: according to Abelard, the next morning, there was an enormous crowd who came out. It, it reads as though he's saying that they were mourning the loss of his man parts. Probably it was this is a mark of the translation, that, that it was really that people were extremely upset at the uh, the physical disfigurement he had undergone, and it not so much just the loss of physical sexual prowess. right? So he says, it is difficult, nay, impossible for words of mine to describe the amazement which bewildered them, the lamentations they uttered, the uproar with which they harassed
0: me or the grief with which they increased my own suffering. He simultaneously bemoaned his fate and saw it as a fitting punishment since it had removed from him the part of his body with which he had sinned. Abelard
1: retreated to the monastery at Saint-Denis. At first, uh, this was more to hide from what had happened to him than out of any newfound religious devotion. He became a monk, and Heloise, who at this point was already sheltering at a convent, took vows and became a Benedictine nun.
0: While at Saint-Denis, Abelard tried to continue with his life of study and teaching, but to turn his attention to faith instead of philosophy. But the monastery at Saint-Denis was, in Abelard's wor- words, quote, utterly worldly, and its abbot was corrupt. Abelard became popular as a teacher, even as he criticized the monastery and tried very hard to reform it.
1: His constant criticism naturally drew the ire of the other teachers and monks at the monastery, who all rallied against him and complained about him to bishops, archbishops, and any other church official who would listen. He also, while he was there, wrote books that were deemed to be heretical. And his previous feuds with other uh, philosophical and religious thinkers, which we referenced at the beginning of the podcast, kind of came back to haunt him. Abelard fled to Champagne and became a hermit.
0: Students of philosophy continued to seek him out to try to get him to return to teaching. And he did, but he was constantly criticized and scrutinized for applying logic to matters of faith. And that was a practice that was viewed as very threatening to the medieval church.
1: After a while, he and his students created this community of teaching and learning that they called La Periclette. Eventually, he handed La Periclette over to Heloise and the nuns from the convent where she'd been staying, uh, because their convent had been disbanded after some internal church feuding. She became the abbess at La Periclette.
0: And Heloise became highly respected in her own right at this point. Being an abbess required skill in both administrative and religious work, and she drew praise from Peter the Venerable and other prominent religious figures. She was also fluent in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, and she taught these languages to the other nuns as well.
1: Abelard continued to teach and to serve as an abbot, although his skeptical manner of approaching religious thought continued to draw fire. Eventually, he wound up, because of this, being accused of heresy, and he was condemned at a council at Sens in 1140. His sentence was lifted only after Peter the Venerable uh, intervened.
0: Abelard's health started to really fail, and he died in 1142. Peter the Venerable built a tomb for him in Saint-Marcel, but Heloise had him moved and reburied at La Périclette so that she could watch over him.
1: She lived another 20 years before dying sometime in 1163 or 1164. La Periclete also became a highly respected convent under under her leadership with six daughter
0: houses as well. And there's a story that she was actually buried in Abelard's grave, but there's no substantiation of that in the record. She was buried next to him and their burial place was moved to a drier location in 1497.
1: In 1616, the letters that she and Abelard had exchanged between each other were published for the first time. And in 1621, the nuns at La Periclette moved their bodies to a new and more impressive tomb to satisfy curious visitors. They repeated this whole exhumation and reburial a few more times in conjunction most of the time with new translations of the letters coming out and sort of influx of abelard and heloise letter tourists
0: had yeah, to constantly uh upgrade the setting for the additional crowds i presume yes uh in the early 19th century abelard and heloise were moved to the cemetery Pere lachaise in paris where they are today they lie together in a stone sarcophagus carved with both of their resemblances and it's under a roof supported by pillars and arches
1: The tomb in Père Lachaise was designed by Alexandre-Marie Lenoir, who was the director of the Musée des Monuments Français between 1790 and 1816. Lenoir actually obtained their remains from La Periclette in 1800 and then created this tomb that had sort of a faux medieval look and feel. And he incorporated some pieces from uh, what was reported to be some of the earlier tombs that had existed at La Periclette. The tomb itself is more about being evocative of their lives and their love story than authentic to the art and architecture of the period in which they lived.
0: We believe that the real remains are probably buried there because they were measured and authenticated when Lenoir acquired them. So anytime bodies get moved that many times, there's always a question mark of, is
1: that really who we think it is? But yeah.
0: They were verified. Especially
1: since the remains started out in the 12th century. <laughs> yes. Now to return to Abelard and Heloise, they both wrote extensively. Heloise's writings uh, primarily included letters to Abelard and to other religious figures. And then Abelard's writings also include works on theology, metaphysics, logic, the philosophy of language, and the philosophy of mind. He also wrote poetry and songs, and some of these were about Heloise.
0: He never explicitly credited her, but modern scholars contend that Heloise really was quite influential when it came to Abelard's thoughts in the area of ethics. This is a reversal of older scholarship, which claimed that Heloise's thoughts were borrowed in their entirety from Abelard.
1: Yeah, it has to do with how focused she was on the idea of hypocrisy and how the life you're living outwardly should Match up with the life that you're living inwardly, which she herself was very distressed by that idea, uh, given the fact that she had gone into a convent for reasons other than uh, spiritual devotion. Yeah. So there, uh, in addition to all this, there are the letters that Abelard and Heloise wrote to each other after their relationship had ended. The first one was to Abelard from Heloise after she had read his Historia Calamitatum. He wrote this about 15 years after their relationship had ended. And when Heloise got it and read it, she was deeply distressed and very worried by what she read there about his mental state and how they had depicted their relationship and the
0: like. She was also quite angry that in 12 years he had not once expressed concern or gratitude for her joining the convent, which she had not really wanted to do and she had done entirely as like a sacrifice for his sake. Her personal letters are very passionate
1: and very pained. She wrote of how uh, upset she is that, as we referenced a moment ago, she took vows because she loved Abelard, not because she loved God. She also wrote of how much she loved Abelard, saying things like, My heart was not in me, but with you. And now, even more, if it is not with you, it is nowhere. Truly, without you, it cannot
0: exist. She also wrote of her sexual frustration. Quote, Even during the celebration of mass, when our prayers should be purer, lewd visions of these pleasures take such a hold upon my unhappy soul that my thoughts are on their wantonness instead of on our prayers. I should be groaning over the sins I have committed, but I can only sigh for what I have lost.
1: At one point in her letters, she accused Abelard of feeling only lust for her and not love, and in a reply, he agreed with her.
0: That's not what you want to hear back. Not really. Uh, Abelard's letters are reserved. They're a bit luxury, and they're really lacking in romance. So some people
1: frame this as Abelard being rational while Heloise is emotional. But a lot of Abelard's writing really is quite emotional, too. It's just that all of his emotion is directed toward religious matters and his sort of personal torment, uh, and and what his life has become, while Heloise's emotion is all directed at Abelard,
0: and they also exchanged letters of direction about how to establish a rule for her community of nuns, and they discussed matters of faith and scripture. So not all of their correspondence was just "I loved you, I loved you, I loved you so much," and you kind of dropped the ball, and him and saying him going, "Yep." <laughs> <laughs> uh, most of the time, when you find collections of them,
1: they're they're. Divided into like the more personal letters and the more uh, spiritual letters, where they address questions about scriptures and and how the Paraclet should operate and that kind of thing. There is some debate about the authenticity of these letters. You know, their relationship happened during the 11, uh, 1100s, but the oldest copies of these letters are from the 1300s. So naturally, this has led to speculation about whether they each really wrote everything that was attributed to them.
0: And the three schools of thought are that uh, they're exactly what they're said to be. That Abel- And then there's another that is that Abelard, in fact, wrote all of the letters. And then there's another that uh, some other unrelated person wrote them later on. As a bit of medieval fanfic. Uh,
1: the overall, but, you know, definitely not 100% unanimous consensus is that they are what they say they are. That they're letters from Abelard to Heloise and vice versa. And because they are so old, you can read many of them on the Internet for free. Should you be so inclined? <laughs> uh, yes. T- Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> Castration and We don't really or at least I couldn't find what happened to Baby Astrolabe. Like we
0: know that Yeah, I don't remember ever hearing about that.
1: Yeah. Baby Astrolabe <laughs> stayed in Brittany with Abelard's sister. But otherwise, like, don't really have any sense of that.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting to me that they have been uh buried many times together when it seems like at least from a romantic point of view uh, things had kind of uh, fizzled out
1: yeah the, well by the
0: time they were both deceased
1: yeah they they I think their their romantic relationship with one another seems to have come to a complete halt uh, from the time that he was castrated. I think had he not been castrated they probably would have continued to have some kind of uh, in secret, relationship with one another but then once that happened it wasn't just because he did not have the physical parts anymore but because that was such a hugely devastating experience for him he felt completely shamed by the whole thing he had sort of become this public figure who had been literally disfigured because of this whole thing like he was like no, now I'm going to devote my whole life to this other thing I think Heloise though continued to for the rest of her life even after their correspondence stopped being about how much uh she missed him and how much she loved him I think she really carried that forever it
0: certainly seems that way
1: yeah